You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio and Network to the Anarchist World This Week. This program is, is podcast everywhere. It's broadcast everywhere. So, why doesn't anything change? Because something is broadcast everywhere and podcast everywhere. It doesn't mean anything's going to change. You can listen to things, but you've got to take the next step. Now, what's anarchy? Well, what's anarchism? Anarchos without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people? Simple inequalities in power and wealth. So what is the anarchist struggle? The anarchist struggle is to break down hierarchy and share power, possibly through decentralisation and direct democracy, are two mechanisms you can do that. And it's the uh, struggle to share wealth. So you're involved in the struggle to hold wealth in common and devolve power, share power. I've got some bad news for you. You've got a fatal disease. It's called anarchism. You may not know about it. It's like COVID-19, anarchism. You may have no symptoms, but you may be carrying the virus. So think about it. Inequalities in power and wealth. That's what anarchy is all about. Now, you get some very learned thinkers who will give you these huge volumes about what anarchism is all about and the correct, in inverted commas, strategy to pursue this. There's no correct strategy. It's the struggle to devolve, share power, whole wealth in common, share wealth. And it's a struggle which is about breaking the hole that rulers have on the human race. Very simple concept. You don't need a PhD. You don't even need to go to primary school. Many of the early anarchists were illiterate, but they understood, they understood that it's inequalities in power and wealth which was their which caused their oppression. It wasn't somebody's race or nationality or colour or gender or sexual orientation which was the base of that oppression. The base of that oppression was inequalities in power and wealth. Now, I thought I'd start off with a nice topic today. Hate speech. (laughs) Hate speech. It's a nice topic because... You see, behind every great massacre, behind every holocaust, behind every genocide, behind every, you know, evil, is not the devil. It's human beings. And it's hate speech. And if you look at history, before 
you see the implementation of policies which isolate, marginalise and remove sections of society which are different, there's always that propaganda, that hate speech. If you look at the, the Nazi Holocaust, the European Holocaust of Jews, look at the decades of hate speech before that. If you look at what's happening in Palestine today, Look at the hate speech that's been coming out of the ultra-nationalist and nationalist uh, government in Israel against Arabs. Not against specific sections of the Arab community, but against Arabs. So that's about hate speech is speech which is designed to humiliate, denigrate, ostracize and eventually remove sections of the population, not because of what they do or what they are, but because they have a particular label. They can be gay. I remember when gay bashing was a popular sport in Australia in the 70s and 80s. They could be Jews. They could be Muslims. They could be the little girl down the street. And that's hate speech is based on that concept that it removes individuality from human beings. It puts them together into this amorphous mass which says all Arabs are bad, all Jews are bad, all gays are bad, all transgenders are bad, all Muslims are bad. And that's what hate speech is about. If you look at the Rwandan genocide, it's a classic example of how hate speech was used in order for the genocide to occur in Rwanda in 1990. Almost a million people were killed within six weeks in the brutal, the most brutal way because they were Tutsis. And if you look at the radio propaganda, for months leading up to the slaughter, it was all about killing the Tutsis, murdering the Tutsi. You go and see Adolf Hitler address the Nuremberg rallies. Listen to the hate speech. Listen to the hate speech we have in Australia amongst ultra-nationalists in this country. But more importantly, listen to the dog-whistling which is occurring now as we approach a federal election by sections of the Liberal National Party, dog-whistling to its constituency, a constituency where it's all about hate speech. The Greens, in inverted commas, the Greens are the enemies. They're the enemies of the state. The Greens, the Green Party, they're the enemies of you know, rural Australia, regional Australia. So hate speech is essential, is an essential element of the steps that are taken in order to marginalise, ostracise and eventually eliminate a group of people in society who somehow don't fit the picture of what that society should be. And if you think it's gone away, it hasn't gone away. Social media has given people who are involved in hate speech a platform which they didn't have in the past. You had to work very hard to generate enough hate to bring about a holocaust or a genocide. But today, it's easy. Anybody can use social media to generate hate. So... Think about it. When somebody tells you the Chinese are bad or the People's Republic of China is bad 
or the Arabs are the bad guys or, you know, somebody is bad, some group in society is bad, doesn't fit in, think about it because it's hate speech is designed to divide us. And interestingly, when we set up public interest before corporate interest about five years ago, we made, we have two very important statements. And one statement is based on membership. Because the way to tackle hate speech and the way to tackle divisions is to ensure that any organisation or any society we belong to is inclusive. And with public interests before corporate interests, membership is open to people of all religious beliefs and no religious beliefs. We welcome people of all races, nationalities, genders and sexual orientation. We believe all human beings are born with inalienable rights and liberties no government can legislate away or corporations take away. So it's an inclusive organisation. And the dilemma is, in the 21st century, especially in a so-called multicultural society, instead of being inclusive, major political forces, both in power and working outside the tent, have been intent on creating divisions. And if you really want a lesson about hate speech, just remember, reconciliation week, which starts on the 27th of May, which is National Sorry Day, and ends on the 3rd of June, uh, Mabo Day, which is just about two weeks away. Think of all the hateful speech that has been used and continues to be used to marginalise, ostracise the original owners and inhabitants of this land. Where 200 and almost 30 years after colonisation began, we still haven't reached any accommodation with this country's First Nations people. As I keep saying, you are the person, you are the person who can ensure that hate speech against a particular section of society doesn't become the norm because once it becomes the norm, it's incorporated into the political framework, the social framework, the cultural framework and that's when you see laws that are introduced that exclude people, not because of what they've done or who they are but because they belong to a specific group and let's not forget that as a society here in Australia, we are the leaders in hate speech. We are the leaders in hate speech. The first legislation, the first law, which was passed by the Australian Parliament in 1901, was a law, was the White Australia Policy, a law which led to the deportation, forceful deportation of slave labour, Canucks, who had been brought to this country to provide cheap labour, who were deported in their thousands, tens of thousands, back to the South Pacific, although they had lived here for generations in some cases. So let's not forget that. That hate speech is instrumental in creating the conditions which create a fascist community.
a community where a small number of people determine who receive state power or have been elected into state power. And don't forget that Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party were elected into the German Assembly. Let's not forget that. They are elected by the German people for a variety of reasons because hate speech does work. All you've got to look at is the situation in India today where the Hindu nationalist government has used hate speech in order to maximise its electoral appeal but now finds itself unable to deal with a crisis because all they were concerned about was fomenting hate and division within that country. And let's look at our country today. So, as I said, hate speech is the lubricant to create an intolerant, authoritarian, fascist community and we need to resist it at every level, every level. And it is an individual responsibility to call it out when you come across it. Obviously, there is always risks, personal risks involved, and you may lose friends in the process or people who you thought were your friends, but the reality is that if it's not like people like you and me that call it out, it will grow and grow and grow exponentially, just like COVID-19 does when it captures a section of the population. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is heard on community radio stations across this country, north to south, east to west. My name's Joseph Toscano. Does size matter? Hmm? Does size matter? Yes, double entendre. Does size matter? Well, I'm going to approach this in a way you may find a little bit convoluted, but hang on. I mean, we'll get there. We'll get there, okay? The first thing, does size matter? Now, the city of Melbourne is about 9,900 square kilometres. Big city, 5 million people. The city of Geelong is about a thousand square kilometres. I think the city of Canberra is about 500 square kilometres with a population of about 300,000. The city of Shepparton in regional Victoria has a population of about 55,000. And it has 250, it's about 250 square kilometres. All right? So where are we going? Well, the city of, well, the district of Gaza in the Middle East. How big do you think it is? How big do you think Gaza is? Do you think it's as big as the city of Melbourne? Do you think it's as big as the city of Geelong? Do you think it's as big, big as the city of Canberra? Or do you think it's maybe a little bit bigger, about a third bigger than the city of Shepparton or the town of Shepparton? Well, you may be surprised to know the city of Gaza is approximately 351 square kilometres, which is about one and a half times the city, the size of the city of Shepparton and about one thirtieth the size of Melbourne or Sydney. 
130th. So you've got 2 million people stuck in Gaza. And I'll explain why they're stuck later on. 2 million people. So if you're going to conduct a bombing campaign against 2 million people in an area the size, a little bit bigger than Shepparton, a regional town in Victoria with about 55,000 people, it's like shooting ducks in a gallery, isn't it? Could you imagine... I know people talk about the fear that people in southern Israel face as they face, you know, rockets, missiles, which are supposedly to be, supposedly had to, you know, they had a defence shield against them, which obviously is not working. But could you imagine if you're a parent in the city of Gaza, which is just a little bit, about a third bigger than the size of Shepparton, 350 square kilometres, and there are bombs raining down on your patch of the earth. Could you imagine the fear, the anger, the death toll? It doesn't matter how sophisticated your bombing campaign is. There will always be civilian casualties, and we are seeing that in the city of Gaza. But people say, well, they're Arabs. And I've always found it a little bit um, consternation. I mean, it looks like certain lives don't matter in this country. I know we've had a big Black Lives Matter campaign, which has had a little bit of an impact. Maybe not much in Australia, but in the United States had a little bit of an impact. But why is it that Palestinian, Palestinian lives don't matter in the liberal West? Now, obviously, when the Chinese People's Republic of China, PR, PR, People's Republic of China, um, has campaigns against minorities like Uyghurs, we get people in the West jumping up and down, and I understand why we jump up and down. National governments jump up and down. But when it comes to the lives of Palestinians, men, women and children, mainly women and children in this case, we find that somehow we shrug our shoulders. I've heard no comments from the Morrison government regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I've heard no comments from the Labor opposition, maybe they've made comments and I've missed, missed out of them, but I have heard no comments. But I can imagine if they are comments, they're supposedly, you know, equal, so, you know, equal, equal, whatever. But why is it that Palestinian lives don't matter? Now, it wasn't the Palestinians who were dispossessed by the State of Israel who were responsible for the European Jewish Holocaust. It was Europeans. It was fascism, European fascism, which created the Holocaust. And it was the world which turned a blind eye to what was happening in Germany. As the hate speech increased and the conditions were laid, which allowed 
the industrial killing of people to occur. But the Palestinians have been asked to carry the can for the West, for the European conflict. They've been asked to carry the can, and they've carried that can for the last 70 years, being dispossessed from their lands. But not only dispossessed from their lands, but dispossessed from the right to exist as a specific entity and a specific cultural entity and a national entity on this planet. And when you looked at the United Nations so-called Security Council meeting last week, last weekend, it was quite interesting to see the United States kept saying, yet, yet, yet. No, no, no. And consistently, since the creation of the State of Israel, the United States has vetoed any attempts to reach some type of solution, whether it's a two-state solution or a one-state solution, in this part of the world, consistently. So why is it that Palestinian lives don't matter? Well, it's simple. It's all about energy and oil. Simple. The, the West needs an ally in the Middle East to ensure the oil keeps pumping out. Now, as the, we reach the end of the fossil fuel era, and we are reaching that end, maybe the situation will change in Palestine. Maybe it'll change. So think about it. Why don't Palestinian lives matter in the liberal West? Now, how do you resolve the issue? in Palestine? How do you provide security for people in the Gaza Strip? How do you provide security from people in the occupied West Bank? How do you, do you provide security from these expanding illegal settlements in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip? Now, the United Nations occasionally gets the okay from the Security Council to put troops in troubled areas. We see it on the Turkish-Greek-Cypriot border and we've seen United Nations troops being placed in many conflict situations, including Rwanda. But there is never any discussion about protecting the Palestinian people from the excesses of this Israeli state via United Nations intervention and providing troops to ensure there is at least some stability. And is why is that? Because never in the history of the United Nations has, has the United States agreed to any type of intervention in the Israeli conflict. None. What's the point of having United Nations if it can't act? What's the point? What's the point of having five members of the Security Council, China, Russia, England, France, China 
Russia, Britain, France and the United States having veto power regarding any intervention anywhere in the world. Think about it. Now, sometimes some people make some statements which make me think, what are they on? What drug are they on? I want some of that because it blurs reality. Now, I heard a, now, I've heard a statement from the acting Israeli ambassador in Australia regarding the Gaza conflict because it doesn't look good killing women and children. It just doesn't look good. And the acting Israeli ambassador in Australia said, and this is a direct quote, our enemies are not the people of Gaza. Their enemies are Hamas, which is their political representatives. Our enemies are not the people of Gaza. And I'm thinking to myself, that's nice. Our enemies are not the people of Gaza. It's the political organisation which represents the people of Gaza, who they've elected, which are our enemies, but not the people of Gaza. And then I think to myself, if your enemies are not the people of Gaza, why do they live in the world's biggest prison? Why all along the 57-kilometre um, border with Israel are there checkpoints, observation posts? Why weren't the people of Gaza given the option of having COVID-19 injections? Why do they have to wait for hours, sometimes days, weeks, months, in order to get a permit to get urgent medical treatment in the state of Israel? Because if, if the people of Gaza are not the Israelis' enemies, why are there all these prohibitive laws in place which ensures that they're trapped? in this 351 square kilometre prison. Why is it they have to be concerned about the power being turned off? Why is it that water supplies and food can be turned on and off as a weapon of war? So if the, if the people of Gaza are not your enemies, are not the enemies of the, the state of Israel, you would think, you would think that somehow, 70 years later, some accommodation would have been made. Because the more extreme the political representatives are, the more the oppression which occurs, because if you think the people of Palestine are just going to disappear and go away and pack up their bags and move to the rest of the world, it doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't happen that way. And let's not forget, the people of Israel have had four elections in the last two years, or is it 18 months? And on each occasion, it's almost been a dead heat. But on each occasion, the nationalists and the ultra-nationalists, those who use hate speech as a political campaigning mechanism trying to outdo each other. It's a little bit like, I'll give you an example. I mean, the hate speech which is used in Israel by nationalists and ultra-nationalists is a little bit like what happens during an election, you know, in a state election where 
the opposition and the uh, government of the day have an auction regarding harsher prison sentences, you know, for criminals, because everybody wants harsher prison sentences for so-called criminals, don't they? It's the same there. It's hate speech leads to this situation. So are there any solutions? There's always solutions to every human problem. And the solution to this human problem is United Nations intervention in this theatre of war. That is the solution to this problem. That's what the United Nations was created for, to ensure that what happened in Europe during the Second World War, the Holocaust that occurred against Jews and gypsies, you know, uh, communists, anarchists, and the list goes on and on, people with disabilities, didn't occur again. That is what this conflict is all about. So when you go to bed tonight, when you tuck in your kids or grandkids into their little little cribs and cots, think about the plight of the people of Gaza. Living in an area, two million people, the third most densely populated uh, piece of earth on this planet, tucking in their kids, concerned about whether they will wake up the next day, whether the buildings around them will collapse, whether they will die that night, because they are sitting like sitting ducks in a fairground shooting gallery. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. I usually keep away from uh, what's happening overseas. There's not much I can do. There's not much you can do. But collectively, we can raise our voices against what's happening because uh, if we don't, the atrocities will get worse. No wonder the Al Jazeera and the Associated Press were targets for the Israeli military, thinking that somehow, in a social media age, that the what was happening would never get out. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Now, I'd just like to remind you, I know this is boring, but I'd like to remind you, that we do have a radio phone here, here at 3CR and uh, the Anarchist World this week, which will be brought, usually broadcast at 10am to 11am, uh, is attempting to raise $15,000. That's right. $15,000 towards keeping community radio station 3CR on air. Now, I know it sounds like a huge amount, $15,000, but it's really nothing in comparison to what some people earn in this country. Mr Twiggy Forrest and Gina Reinhardt has been quiet lately. Well, they'd earn $15,000 every 10 seconds. That's right. You may get $15,000 for a year being on Social Security benefits, but they did. They get that money, unless they own personal money, not just company money, maybe every 10 seconds, maybe every 15 seconds. So I'm sure the listeners to the Anarchist World this week will donate generously and we will make that $15,000 target. And the irony is that you can receive a legal, legitimate tax deduction for uh, listening to the Anarchist World this week. And now, the late Kerry Pack, I know he and I didn't see eye to eye on many, many things, but as far as... Uh, 
tax deductions are concerned. Mr Packer kept saying only a fool would pay taxes if they didn't need to. So why give the Australian government unnecessary taxation revenue when you can donate to the 3CR Radiophon? That's right. Donate to the 3CR Radiophon. Many ways to donate. If you go to 3cr.org.au, press the Donate button, you can see how you can do it. So think about it. Where do you want your taxes to go? Do you want a, a, a local community radical radio station to continue to broadcast for another 50 years? Or do you want it to go into the $90 billion which is going to be used to build some submarines that are going to be no longer useful once they're built? So think about it. It's up to you, obviously, what you do with your money. But if you are earning money and you do pay taxes, follow Kerry... Kerry Packer's advice and uh, use every legal legitimate tax deduction to uh, minimise your tax. Legal legitimate. Okay? Let's move on. Corporate welfare. I love corporate welfare. It is such a wonderful thing, corporate welfare. Without corporate welfare, this country wouldn't be as... (sighs) what it is. Latest example of corporate welfare. Now, you may have noticed that late last year there was a bit of a kerfuffle about the fact that some bright spark, including myself, I'll include myself in that uh, category, realised that Australia had no oil reserves and, and hardly any oil refineries left because they were going offshore. So we have today 81 days of fuel in this country, on this continent, 81 days in reserve. Not long. Remember, we're an island. Not long. And the Prime Minister said he organised a little tete-a-tete with Mr Trump for Australia to have access to uh, America's oil reserves to resolve the issue. But, you know, you've got to get it from there to here, and that can take ages, especially in tankers, especially in a situation when you're involved in a conflict with another nation's state. We have two oil refineries left. Uh, I think one at Geelong, and I'm not sure where the other one is, a Viva oil refinery and an Ampol oil refinery. Now, how does the federal government try to resolve the issue of fuel security? Does it create its own refinery? Now, I know they're very, very keen to use taxpayers' money to build another fossil fuel power plant in New South Wales because the private investors aren't that stupid. They don't want to lose their money investing in a technology that's on its way out, but they're willing to use taxpayers' money to, you know, bankroll a fossil fuel energy plant. So you would think, you would think, using the same logic, they would use taxpayers' money to create one or two refineries in this country, maybe one on the East Coast, one on the, you know, South Australia, West Australia area, to ensure that we have fuel security, not just fuel security in terms of defence, but fuel security in terms of production. Well, an idiot like me would think that way, and most likely idiots like you would think that way, but not the geniuses, not the intellectuals, not, you know, God's chosen children 
in Parliament. They think differently. So what has the federal government done on your behalf? Because it's your money, it's your taxes. Let's not forget that almost 70% of taxes, taxation revenue, comes from pay-as-you-earn taxpayers, or less than 20% comes from corporations and businesses. So it's the pay-as-you-earn taxpayers and the mug in this game. Well, it's simple. They are going to give Ampol and Viva, over the next nine years, $2 billion to ensure they don't close their factories. <laughs> you like it? And what's that going to do? It's going to increase our fuel reserves from 81 days to 90 days. I'm so excited. I am so excited regarding this policy initiative. It's just what the country needs. More corporate welfare when taxpayers' money could be used to fund essential infrastructure to ensure that essential services continue to function irrespective of the gyrations in the private marketplace. If the duty of government is to provide security to its citizens and residents, you would think, oh, idiots like you and me would think, that that duty would extend to funding infrastructure and resources which provide essential services. And in a post-industrial society which is still basically dependent on fossil fuels, you would think that investing in a state-owned one or two refineries would be the way forward while we trans, you know, move from a fossil fuel-based economy to a renewable fuel-based economy. But no, 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 no. Corporate welfare, it's the way forward. It's always the way forward. For example, NDIS. I struggled for 40 years and gave evidence and got involved in protests to create for the government to be forced to create a national disability insurance scheme because obviously it was grossly unfair. Look, I've been involved in looking after people with profound physical disabilities post-injury for almost over four decades, all right? Over four decades, almost four and a half decades. And when I first started in this field, people who were covered by the Transport Accident Commission and Workers' Compensation had a reasonable life. And those that had no coverage, it was a miserable existence. A miserable existence because they had to rely on a social security benefit to survive. No attendant care and the list went on and on. I don't want to go down that path. So the, the whole point about the struggle to create a national disability insurance scheme was to ensure that people with disabilities were able to participate in everyday life. Now, obviously, the national disability insurance scheme has been set up and billions of dollars have been allocated. But what's happened? It's been outsourced. Almost every aspect of the National Disability Insurance Scheme has been outsourced to the private sector. And every day I get complaints from patients regarding what's happening, how the private sector gouges taxpayers' money and not providing 
the services which they're outsourced to provide. I mean, fraud is endemic, endemic in the current national disability insurance scheme. Not only fraud, but the fact that over 40 cents in every dollar which the taxpayer has allocated, not the government, the taxpayer, you and me, we have allocated to look after people with disability, goes in profits and administration costs for private corporations and private businesses which now dominate, dominate the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And this is what happens consistently. We see it over and over again, Royal Commission after Royal Commission. We saw it in the aged care sector. Because the way you make a profit in this business, and they are businesses, whether it's childcare, whether it's aged care, which is National Disability Insurance Scheme, if you're involved in an organisation which is based on the concept of private investment of private profit, you can only make it in two ways. You screw the people you're looking after or you screw the people who are providing the services. In the aged care sector, you can screw both by underpaying your staff, not respecting your staff, having part-time insecure staff and then you you screw your residents, you decrease the amount of time that they have as far as care is concerned and you decrease the amount of food they have or the quality of the food. The National Disability Insurance Scheme, similar. You either screw the recipients and government is doing that by changing legislation in terms of who who isn't eligible or you screw them by maximising profits by providing services. And it's the same with the aged care packages, which everybody talks about. So why do we continue as a nation down this privatised pathway? Why do we continue to think public is bad, private is good? Look at the housing sector. Here I was with four other lost souls on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House last night, holding up a banner, public housing, everybody's business. If uh, sales tax on homes in Victoria was used to create public housing, you could get rid of the waiting list in in a year. You could house 100,000 people every year in public housing, that means within a decade you'd have over a fifth of the population, 20% living in safe, secure public housing. But no, no. What do they do, Labor or Liberal? They privatise the public housing sector. They give over the responsibility to private organisations to provide that service. And they call themselves affordable housing, social housing, community housing, obviously, Whether they're for-profit or not, it's about making a profit and increasing the reach of that particular organisation, not providing public housing. For example, last night, it wasn't too cold in Melbourne, but winter is coming. 50 metres across the road, here we were holding up our banner, 7.30pm, Tuesday the 18th of uh, May. Across the road, centre of you know, Melbourne City, corner of Burke Street and Spring Street. Across the road, a homeless man was trying to sleep on the footpath outside the Windsor Hotel, 50 metres 
from the steps from the Victorian Parliament. And what does the Victorian Parliament do? Well, it gives away billions of dollars to the private sector to create housing for the dispossessed, the poor, the desperate. Housing that never seems to be able to deal with the problem. Instead of increasing public housing stock through spot purchasing, you don't need to build huge apartment complexes. You can spot purchase like they did in the 80s, 1980s and 1990s in Victoria. Spot purchase homes around the state, regional areas, rural areas, urban areas and provide public housing. If you use the 6 to $7 billion, which will come in stamp duty revenue from the sale of homes, and that's a tax which people pay to you know, buy a house, and it's a significant tax. You can pay up to, now that people are paying over a million dollars for homes, you can be paying up to eighty, ninety, dollars $100,000 in stamp duty. If that money was quarantined for public housing, as I said before, you could house a million Victorians in public housing within a decade. And what does public housing is about? It's about providing secure accommodation. I'm not just talking about personal security, but secure accommodation, the fact that you know that your children can go to the same school. Unlike if you're in rental accommodation where you have a year-to-year lease, your children may move from school to school to school, which may have a profound impact on their uh, education and future possibilities. It means your kids can go to the same sporting clubs. They can form friendships with people in in a community. And spot housing means, spot purchasing housing means, that people on limited incomes and social security benefits or people who need public housing who are on low incomes are integrated into communities and become part and parcel of that community as you break down that isolation and marginalisation which occurs. And then you have the impact on the housing market. The more people in public housing, the less people who want to rent. The less people who need to rent, you get a fall in property prices. It means that more people who've got a little bit of disposable income can enter the property market and not pay ridiculous amounts of money to keep a roof over their heads and have to pay a mortgage for the next 50 years of their lives if they're lucky. And then there's the other community benefit. The fact that you've got people in spot-purchased homes around the state means there is less possibility of... It decreases criminal activity. It decreases violence. And if you really love money and you're a small business person, what it means is that people aren't paying 50 to 60% of their income to pay rent and, and then have to don't have enough for everything else. It means they pay 25% of their income. That means there's more disposable income. That's right, more disposable income for the community as a whole and the business segment it increases profits. So increasing the public housing sector is a win, 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 win situation. So why shouldn't a tax which comes into the government coffers from applying stamp duty and people buying a home be quarantined and used to create a viable, secure public housing sector in our society, not just in Victoria but the rest of the country. But Victoria is the worst state when it comes to public housing and public housing 
availability. It's the worst state in terms of privatisation. And the tragedy is that these policies have been supported and continue to be supported by both the Liberal National Party and, more importantly, the Labor government in Victoria, which has been in power, I think, for the last eight years at least. You listen to the Atticus World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Ah, only the healthy need apply. It's funny, isn't it? Funny country, Australia. Very funny country. The more... I mean, I was born here, so... I'm responsible, okay? I'll take on the responsibility because through the anarchist world this week and other activities I've been involved in, really I've made no difference. No difference to what happens in this country. And it sickens me to see that uh, as far as repatriation is concerned of Australian citizens, we're not talking about asylum seekers and refugees, but Australian citizens and permanent residents, they've got to be healthy to come back. That's right. If you're COVID positive, you get knocked off the plane. If you're a relative of a COVID positive person, you get knocked off the plane. I'm not even going to talk about the tests and the viability of those tests. You get knocked off the plane. We only want people that don't have any COVID-19. I fought, and again, again, I'm an idiot, obviously, and obviously you're listening to me, you're also idiots. I fought, I fought the responsibility of the government to its citizens was to look after their interests. Now, I know that the quarantine system we have in the urban centres isn't the best, but we do have a quarantine system outside Darwin, which is very good in terms of containing infection. Now, what's the point of being a citizen if you're denied entry into your own country if you're sick? Obviously, we can provide the infrastructure to look after people who come across. I mean, it's just an extension of the current immigration policies we have. Look, I, I know many people who have disabilities, and I know many who immigrated in the 70s and 80s to this country, and they were welcomed in this country and made a, a valuable contribution. But today, if you're an asylum seeker or a refugee or an immigrant who's got a disabled child or has a disabled child born in this country, you're not welcome. Disability, you're not welcome. So what's the point of having a government that only is interested in looking after the healthy but has no interest in looking after its citizens who are sick? It's part of this mentality that has grown up in, seems to be growing up in this country that we have no responsibility to anybody except the people living here, in positions of authority. Well, you've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, but I want you to do something for me. No, no, not join public interest before corporate interest. Obviously, you can if you wish, and it'd be nice if we got the next 98 members so we could apply for registration as a political party. You can go that. You go to pipsy.net, P-I-B-C-I.net, or you can go... To, you can ring me on 0439 395 489. No, I won't answer the phone immediately. Just leave a message and I'll send you out an application form or you can write to us at Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052. But I want you to do something for me. 
and I'm sure you'll all do it. I'm not going to ask you to contribute to the 3CR Radio Fund, which will be on the 16th of June, because I'm sure we'll get the $15,000 we need. And if you do need that tax deduction, well, this is a way to get it. And if you want a warm inner glow in your heart, you can always donate, but that's fine. But I want you to do something really, really, really important. I want you to go to the mirror. I want you to look at yourself in the mirror after the program. doesn't matter if you do it tonight after work. I want you to go to your mirror and, and have a look at yourself and say, am I a member of the Gunner tribe? Am I a member of the Gunner tribe? Am I going to do that and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I never seem to get anywhere? And I want you to have another look at yourself in the mirror and say, am I a member of the somebody should do something about that tribe? Joe should do something about that tribe. Uh, should do something about that. The Prime Minister should do something about that. You know? The little boy down the lane should do something about that as well as the little girl down the lane should do something about that. The reality is, you're the person you've been waiting for. You are the person you've been waiting for. We are the people we've been waiting for. We need to tear up our gunner membership and our somebody should do something about that membership cards. We need to become engaged, engaged in struggle, social struggle, cultural struggle, political struggle. If you want change, and if you want radical change, if you don't want to be, you don't want to be business as usual, you need to become engaged. You need to become engaged. I know it's difficult. I know we all have responsibilities, but we can all make that effort to become engaged Become, because democracy is not about casting a ballot every three to four years. Democracy is about being engaged in the affairs of your community within, between elections. Think about it. Tear up that membership card and you'll feel free, light as a feather, and before you know it, you'll be swimming around the sun. That's right. And hopefully, like Icarus, you, your wings won't melt and you'll fall back on the ground. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. I've been hosting this program. You can join public interest before corporate interest. Download the application form, pipsy.net. Uh, you can... Uh, Leave messages on 0439 395 489. You can go to the YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, Instagram, the list goes on and on. Facebook page, Joseph Toscano. You can, you can even write to us, Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Don't forget, you want change, you need to be part of that movement for change. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Listen in next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger!
3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year, we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.